Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. You might be able to tell that my voice is very scratchy. I've been out this week with a case of laryngitis, but I have my TCA colleagues Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire stepping in to discuss a very sad story out of the UK with the death of a baby called Indy Gregory, an infant suffering with a critical illness who was denied the chance for more care even after the Italian government granted her citizenship and offered to take her. This is now the third infant to die as a warden of the state in Britain. But first, we have a new book out by attorney John Birch. He works for the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and his book is called Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. Welcome to the show, John Birch. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. We're very honored to have you because here at Conversations with Consequences at the Catholic Association, we've been following for a long time all your wonderful work at the Alliance Defending Freedom, and you have argued some very important cases before the Supreme Court, and of course, uh, a case that in, in in my opinion, is probably the second most important case after Roe v. Wade, as far as its cultural impact, and uh, that would be Obergefell. And you argued that case, and unfortunately, it went against us. And when I say us, I mean it went against our culture, our country, it went against our future, against our children. It just, we lost big when we lost same-sex marriage. So that must have been very a very big deal for you to be arguing that case in front of the Supreme Court. Well, it was an honor for me to be able to represent the church's teachings on the beauty of marriage between one man and one woman and God's plan for human flourishing. So I was really glad to be able to do that. As we were going into the argument that day, um, there were a lot of tea leaves that strongly suggested that the court was going to rule against us. We knew that Justice Kennedy was almost certainly going to be in a five justice majority to recognize a right to same-sex marriage that doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution or the history of our country. They just made it up. They just one little note on that. Um, 30 years before Obergefell was argued, there was another same-sex marriage case out of the Minnesota Supreme Court. And in that case, the Supreme Court unanimously refused to take the case. And in the order they put, uh, for lack of federal jurisdiction, which meant that all nine justices agreed that because the Constitution was silent about the definition of marriage, that it was left to the states and the federal courts had nothing to say about it. So that's how much things changed in, in 30 years. But notwithstanding the fact that we, we knew what was going to happen, um, it was an honor to go in and to stand up for the truth. It was important to make a historical record. And as a culture, we need to continue talking about the issue and educating, um, especially Catholics, but then eventually non-Catholics as well, as to God's plan for marriage. And maybe someday, the pendulum will swing back and we'll have a chance to overturn Obergefell. One thing that was really notable about the case, after I was done arguing, come out of the doors of the courthouse and there's all kinds of people outside and the television cameras and all that. And almost everybody there was on the other side of the issue. Uh, the only people who were there on our side of the issue uh, were those who were saying that all gays go to hell and you know terrible things like that. And that was the only thing to contrast with the love is love message that the other side was promoting. And so it was really a sign that 
culturally as a church, we have lost uh, the marriage debate, but time goes on for a long time. And with Jesus, everything is possible. Um, I, I have to believe that there was a reason for Roe. And one of those was the great Catholic movement, including all the apostolates that stood up to fight for life in the last 50 years and made Dobbs possible. And really, Obergefell can be a defining moment for the church with respect to marriage as well. We just need to be more courageous and to speak lovingly about the issue. That's a beautiful, hopeful uh, review of something that, that is so complicated for all of us. And I think you're, you're completely right. We as Catholics, as Christians, we weren't prepared for same-sex marriage. We didn't have the language to express ourselves. We didn't have, we hadn't laid the groundwork, right? To, exactly. for that, for the onslaught of love is love. Of course, love is love, but marriage isn't everything. You know, marriage is its own particular thing. And we just didn't have the words. You had the words. And I'm sorry that the justices, now Justice Alito wrote a very beautiful dissent and it's not in front of you, but I remember he made out, uh, I think, very well what was going to happen in the future, that people like us who understand marriage to be what marriage is, which is the lifelong, exclusive, sacramental connection between a man and his wife that is fruitful, and let me not forget any of the elements, that he said that believing that was going to put us in a, in a dangerous minority. I think his words have come to, to pass. Oh, there's no question that his words have come true. I mean, it's to the point now where if you stand up in any kind of a public forum and express the truth about God's plan for marriage, you'll be immediately condemned as hateful and bigoted and a discriminator and, and terrible things like that. Um, and, and it was really that experience that motivated me to write this book about the church and gender ideology because sure. things are moving very, very fast, but there's still time for us to get that language and to be able to talk to people about it. And so I wanted to create a resource that everyday Catholics, you don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to be a scientist, you don't have to be a lawyer, everyday Catholics could pick this up and start to get the, the words that they needed to be able to talk about gender ideology to their kids, their extended family, their neighbors, their friends, their co-employees, uh, because it's not too late for us to turn the culture's mind on the church's beautiful teachings about human sexuality as well. Are you drawing a direct line between your experiences with Obergefell and everything that happened then to your writing of this book? Is there a direct line uh, in your head and in your heart? Th there is a direct line in my head and my heart. And I think there's a direct line culturally too, because those who push a gender ideology agenda we're getting ready for Obergefell. Um, as I mentioned, we pretty much knew how it was going to turn out. And so as soon as the decision was released, they were ready to immediately pivot to the transgender issues. Uh, and you may not remember this, but back in 2015, uh, within a week or two after the decision had come out, uh, they were already putting Bruce Jenner on the cover of magazines and on all the TV talk shows to talk about his transition to the woman, Caitlyn Jenner. And already at that point, um, there was the TV show, I, I am Jade, you know, oh, yeah. again, about the, the boy who was transitioning jazz. to be a girl. Jazz. Or jazz, yeah, jazz, jazz, yes. Uh, poor, that, poor jazz. Was, Things have gone yes, really bad exactly. for jazz. Um, so, you know, there was a TV show and there were children's books. And, and so the progressive movement, which is trying to destroy the American family, was immediately ready to take Obergefell as its launching pad for a push towards gender activism. And that's where we find ourselves today. And, and yet, even even now, I, don't, I think most people can't draw that line, that immediate next step, right? That whole thing of same-sex marriage doesn't really connect to the, the lunacy of saying a little boy can become a young woman. 
instead of going through puberty <laughs> properly and becoming yeah. a young man. I think the connection is the first chapter of your book, which is what is truth. Do you agree? And how does uh, understanding truth properly ground us? I think that's a huge part of it. We understand as Catholics that there is an objective truth, that all of God's creation has truth imprinted on it, and that we can discern and discover that truth through the use of our intellect and reason. And that's something that the church has done for 2000 years. But there's a, a growing movement um, in the world, but particularly in our young people, if you look at those college age and younger, uh, where more than 90% of them adopt moral relativism as their worldview. And Pope Benedict, uh, many years ago, was asked what the greatest danger facing the world is today. And he didn't say abortion. He didn't say same-sex marriage. He didn't say loss and belief in the true presence of the Eucharist. He said it was moral relativism. And the problem is that that view, which is that what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you, has no roots in objective truth. And so everything becomes a matter of opinion. And we can't even have serious conversations about God's plan for marriage or about God's plan for the human body and human sexuality or about abortion or about assisted suicide or, or anything else, because everything is just a matter of opinion. It's like my favorite type of cookie or my favorite type of ice cream. And people like moral relativism because it seems non-judgmental. So if someone else believes in abortion all the way through nine months of pregnancy, we can hold true to our Catholic belief, but we don't have to criticize them or speak up to them because they can have their own truth. And what people don't realize is that moral relativism is abandoning God. It's abandoning his truth in the world. And if you can't have serious conversations about things like mutilating the bodies of our young people because they have a gender identity that they think is different than their sex, then there's really nothing left for us to even talk about in our human relationships anymore. So it, it's critical that we talk within our families, especially, but also our Catholic parishes and our schools about the objective truth that exists and how the church is on a mission to help us find and discover that so that we can live according to God's truth, not according to our own opinion. When people talk about truth, they tend to think about facts, right? Uh, certain things are true or they aren't true. Statistics have shown this or statistics have shown that. Not that there's anything less truthful than statistics, if you ask me as a physician. <laughs> I know that they can be mixed up however you like. And we're starting to see that people are starting to disagree about things that are facts, right? Or like even very basic scientific facts. But people really get upset when you talk about moral truths. How is it as, as Catholics that, that how can we bring into the general conversation the idea of moral truths and, and how these can be universal and applicable all the way across the world? Well, when I'm talking to young people, the way I address it is to talk to them about cars and about car manuals. Okay. So in everybody's glove compartment box or, or maybe on the internet, if you don't have the book anymore, uh, there's a manual and it was made by the same people who created your car. And that manual is not a, a series of things to oppress you or to make you feel guilty or bad about yourself. It's instructions about how to best care for this car so that it'll operate in the way that the maker intended. And we all have the choice. We have the free will to follow that manual or not. We can choose to get the oil changed and the tires rotated and the filters changed and all those sorts of things. Uh, but if we choose not to do that, then what will happen? Well, over time, the car will break down and eventually it'll stop working altogether and it won't be able to work to the best of its ability the way its maker intended. And the moral truths that the church provides for us, um, you know, from the apostles and from the Bible um, and from sacred tradition um, work the same way. They're not a series of no's. They're not meant to oppress us or to confine our freedom. In fact, they liberate us because when we follow those moral truths, it allows us to be the best possible people that we can be, the creatures that God created us to be. 
And so when you look at it that way, moral truths are a very beautiful way to liberate us. And when you think about freedom, our modern culture really has freedom backwards. We think about freedom being the freedom to do everything that we want. Um, and that's not really true freedom at all. True freedom is to be able to choose to do what is good and what is right. And again, there's a great analogy that I use with young people about basketball. If you take someone like Michael Jordan or LeBron James, you know, they're the greatest basketball players that ever lived, but they had to play the game within rules in order for us to know that they were great. If there were no rules in basketball, then someone who was bigger than LeBron would just be able to tackle him, you know, or, or they would double dribble or go out of bounds and come back in again. It's because of the rules that gave him the freedom to be the best possible basketball player he could be. And the church's moral truths in the same way give us the freedom to be the best possible people that we can be. So the moral truths are sort of enabling principles, right? They enable us to yes. live uh, they enable us to live with ourselves in a way that not just promotes our flourishing but makes it possible and also to live with others in a way that that is conducive to peace and to to harmony and and to a society that actually works right exactly um, and, and without them we, we don't have any guideposts and things quickly break down and then we can't have meaningful loving relationships with our neighbors and with our family members uh, we, we need those rules and as you know the way that we get good at following those rules is by practicing virtue um, and and virtue is just a, a topic that we don't talk about nearly enough with our, our young people, but it's those series of habits that make it completely natural, almost unthinking, where we can choose to do the right thing in accordance with moral truths because we have trained ourselves to follow virtues, to be virtuous people, to be uh, patient, to be courageous, to act justly, and all those things uh, that help us to live the moral truths easily and happily. I feel like now in our, in our culture, in our time, we're starting to see the great unraveling of what it really means when we abandon the these enabling principles of, uh, about being human. And some of the things we're seeing are attacks on children. And obviously people all over the United States, all over the world are are waking up suddenly to gender ideology because it has come to the children. Do you think that that's a, that's a big step in the evolution of, of the ideology, uh, the, the kind of step that will enable us to pull the curtain back and for everyone to see? Well, I hope so. Uh, you know, th this all started long ago, but really came to the fore, as I mentioned, in 2015, shortly after Obergefell. And at, at first, they came for our privacy spaces. Boys who identified as girls were being given access to showers and locker rooms um, at high schools and colleges around the country. And people didn't really stand up for that. And then they started to take women's athletic achievements. We, we represented ADF, the, the four young women in Connecticut, oh, where right. two boys identifying as girls won 15 state track and field championships that would have gone to girls and they lost those. Then we started to And to that's not women's... inconsequential. That's Those are scholarships. Those are opportunities for life for Absolutely. these young women. Yeah. So life trajectory some... type things. But, but, but even in the face of that, you know, there wasn't a huge outcry. Some people have spoken up about it and, and that seems to be getting some traction. You know, but, but after after that, then they started um, compelling pronouns in the workplace, especially public employers, but private ones too. Um, you know, and again, people didn't really speak out. And it wasn't until uh, this past summer where we started to really see the policies in the schools where they were transitioning kids, but hiding it from parents, the Bud Light fiasco where they used the transgender spokesperson, and then the LGBT Pride Month um, articles at Target, you know, which included kids swimsuits, which were for um, transgender or, or into your local library for the drag the queen story library. hours. 
And, and so I feel like it was only this summer where people really started to wake up and start to speak out. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but even now, you know, there are curricula in many states, California is kind of a leader in this, where they're teaching kids in kindergarten, first grade uh, to think about how they feel. Do you feel like a boy or a girl or both or neither or some combination thereof and asking them to profess their gender identity. And in states like California, you can lose your child if you don't acquiesce to their request for a gender transition. They consider that abuse and neglect. And, and so we're starting to wake up, but we need a much bigger cultural tidal wave to stand up. And it needs to be led by the, the Catholic Church, first and foremost, uh, if we're actually going to turn the tide on this. You have a chapter in your book on detransitioners, and yes. it's excellent. It's an excellent chapter. We recently had Chloe Cole on our show a couple months ago. Yes. Of all the interviews I've ever done, that's one of my favorites because she was, Chloe Cole is a, a young woman, I think she's 19 now, who had a mastectomy at the age of 15 or 16 and drawn down that horrible path and is now detransitioned, as they say. She's presenting as a woman again, and but she's suffered tremendously and she's very, so vulnerable uh, the way she speaks and she just, she, she floors me with her courage because to, at that age, I just wanted to be like everyone else and, <laughs> and go to the right parties, you know, and she's, she's out there being a light to others. What do you think the detransitioner movement is doing for us? I think it's hugely helpful if we'll only listen to what they have to say, uh, because what you're hearing from them is that they were rushed into really horrible medical processes that deform their bodies permanently. You know, once you have your breasts removed, you can't ever reconstruct them in a way that will ever allow a mother to, to nurse her child again. Or even um, have an aesthetically pleasing appearance. You'll always be scarred. Exactly. You, you will. You know, and often there are issues of permanent infertility. Um, when they're doing it with adolescents and teenagers, there are um, stunted. Uh, development issues having to do with bone structure, muscular structure, brain development, baldness, all those things that are permanently... Baldness for yes, girls. Baldness. That, it, that, that concerns me is, <laughs> tremendously. <laughs> That's because I'm a woman. <laughs> yes. So, so we, we hear about all those things. And, and we also hear from them that they weren't informed that there was another path, you know, and, and that's one of the things that haunted me as I was writing the book um, that I hope every Catholic can understand to motivate them to have courage to speak about this issue, at least within their families, if not publicly, because to hear someone like, like Chloe say, you know, why didn't anyone ever tell me that this was dangerous and that I could have gone to therapy and worked on my, my mental health issues without going through all these horrible procedures? Why didn't anyone tell me? Well, my, my hope is that no one will ever go through this again without knowing that there's another side to the story without knowing that in adults, those who fully transition, suicide rates go up, the mental health issues increase. Um, you have all kinds of other long-term health issues, including heart problems and other things. Now, our, our kids need to know that. They need to know that um, it's not unnatural for an adolescent or a teenager going through puberty to feel uncomfortable in their body, to be fearful, to be anxious, to be stressed, to have difficulty I would guess making relationships. I would guess it's 100% of us, right? Adolescent was hard. It, it, Adolescence was very hard person. on me. And I'm never talked to anyone who thought it was a walk in the park. No, every person I've ever discussed it with has said that it's difficult. But there are many, many, many alternatives to taking life-altering puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and then undergoing surgery. And so we need to tell people so that there's not more Chloe's. Your book is called Loving God's Children. And I think that's the perfect title, especially for Catholics, in my opinion, because as Catholics, okay, I'll tell you a story. This morning, I was leaving Mass and a friend approached me and she wanted to talk about how a very, very close friend of their families has uh, an autistic son who's now 16 or 17, but has decided 
that he should be a, a woman, a girl. And she and, and her husband have decided that that's not someone that her younger, her sons should be interacting with because they're at delicate ages, right? 10, 11, 12. Mm -hmm. This friend who's doing the best she can for her son, I believe she is doing the best she can, feels that this couple doesn't love her anymore, that they they are rejecting her out of a lack of charity, that they're rejecting her son out of, out of a lack of charity. And I think all people of good hearts, we want to be charitable. We want to be loving. We want to be accepting and, and hospitable to everyone. Right. How do we love God's children? How do we love our friends? How do we love our family members and still help them through this terrible time? I'm so glad you asked me that because there is a huge misunderstanding about what love is. And that's something we talk about in the book uh, that through the movies and television shows and novels and things like that, uh, the modern conception of love is that it's just a feeling, you know, you're, you're kind of warm and tingly or sentimental. Um, and it's not recognized as a choice, something that you intentionally do. Um, but the Catholic Church defines love for us very, very differently. The Catechism states that love is willing the best for another person. And, and there's a simple example that I like to use um, because parents understand this intuitively. If your child it walks into the kitchen and they really, really want to touch the hot stove, they say, you know, that's what I want. It'll make me happy. No parent in their right mind would ever give into that because they want what's best for their child and they understand an objective truth that their child does not, that if they touch the hot stove, they're going to get burned and be seriously hurt. And so to love them, they don't give into what they want. They don't give into what they're asking for. They don't give into the child's desires. Instead, they act in a way that's best for them. And so when we think about loving God's children in the context of gender ideology, it never means giving into something that we know will result in long-term hardship and pain and disfigurement and potentially increased risks of suicide. That, that's not loving. Uh, to love them, to will what's best for them, is to accompany them, uh, to walk that journey with them, to help address the underlying causes of the mental anxiety that might be causing the dysphoria or the choice to become uh, transgender. I know there's a, a statistic that among the, the kids who are genuinely gender dysphoric, and, and we have to separate them from kind of the cultural phenomenon, because there is a, a contagion, you know, where a dozen girls in a class will all declare themselves to be transgender at the same time. And that's, that's different than someone who's been clinically diagnosed with gender dysphoria. That's a real thing. And they're suffering a lot. So among the, the dysphoric group, they estimate that 60% of them suffered some kind of childhood sexual abuse or other trauma. Um, sometimes it's a broken relationship with a mother or father. Sometimes it's a relative, you know, who maybe dressed them up as the opposite sex because they always wanted a granddaughter instead of a grand son. It could be lots of different things. But if we want to truly love them, we need to get to the root of what is causing the dysphoria and accompany them through that to express themselves truly as the sex that they are while dealing with these other issues that are on the side. And it's really unfortunate in the autistic community because they're particularly vulnerable to the social media and peer pressure with respect to gender ideology because they can sense that there's something that's not quite the same with them as it is with everybody else. And they can see that their relationships with others maybe don't go the way that they want them to. And so now they're being offered this quick fix on a silver platter that will remarkably solve all these problems. And, and so we need to accompany them too and help them understand that this is going to hurt them and not help them and, and help to find other ways to make those relationships stronger, to help them have genuine friendships and, and things like that. And that's how we truly love. It's not by giving into someone's desires or wants that will ultimately hurt them. Let me ask 
you, what do you say to people who say, well, all this gender ideology has to be kept away from children because they're too young to make their own minds up. And obviously they have no wisdom or experience or foresight <laughs> at 11 or 12 or 13, but it's okay. Whatever, whatever a consenting adult over 18 wants to do. What's the answer to that? Why is, why is that well, not true? If we want to truly love them, then we need to speak the truth to them about what's best for them. And, and you can think about other dysphorias, you know, mental health issues that are similar to gender ideology that we would never think about that way. So for example, anorexia, that's where someone feels that their body is too fat, when in reality, that's not true. They're probably too thin already. And we would never say, well, because that person is a consenting adult, um, I'll encourage them to eat less or to have liposuction or to do something else that will result in them losing more weight because that will make them sick. And ultimately they could die from that. That would not be loving at all. There isn't any other context where we see someone in, uh, engaging and conduct, which we know to be bad for them. And we say, oh, because they're a consenting adult, that's just fine. Um, so we, we, we need to persuade those Catholics that the age of consent is not a reason to abandon talking about this issue. Tell Thank our you. listeners, uh, your book, Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology, where they, uh, when will it come out and where can they access it? It was just released on August ah, 15th, the okay. Feast of the Assumption, which was the best possible release date that uh, they could have chosen. The publisher is Sophia Institute Press, and you can find the book at all of the, the major book retailers. Uh, but we prefer if you go to the Sophia Institute Press website, because then the proceeds will go towards a Catholic publishing company, which does wonderful work publishing Catholic classics, old and new, and not to some of these other mass book sellers who will use that money to promote the opposite type of book and continue to That's promote true. gender ideology. If you go on Amazon and, and you look for gender ideology books, uh, for every one like mine, you'll probably find 50 that are, are talking about it on the other side. It's just so pervasive. I mean, and you one, won't, one and you won't find about, you won't find some like uh, Ryan Anderson's are just not on the site, right? That his was banned. Uh, right. It, it was on it was on Amazon for years. And then um, when Congress was about to undertake a bill that would have amended all of our federal laws to give gender ident identity and sexual orientation protection with no religious accommodations across every federal statute, just days before the debate started, they removed it from the platform and said that it was discriminatory and hateful based on its its writings, which are, are very loving and thoughtful. I know you know Ryan and, and how beautifully he talks about yeah. all kinds of subjects that are important to the church. Uh, but, but Amazon banned it, and so you still can't get it there. And, and, and when I think about popular culture, too, it's just so dangerous. Um, you know, Blues Clues is a show for three and four-year-olds. It's one that our kids watched when, when they were really little. Uh, it teaches lessons about caring and sharing and, and things like that. But last year, if you had stepped away to do the laundry or to take a short nap while your kid watched Blue's Clues, your three-year-old was exposed to a pride parade. Uh, it was sung by a, a cross-dressing man uh, who has a, a drag queen show. And each float celebrated some aspect of LGBT pride. Oh. And one of them was a float of beavers. And one of the, the kid beavers on that float had pieces of tape across her, her chest. And it's because she had had a breast removal surgery. And, and, and it's just one of many examples of the way that the mass media and social media, too, is trying to infect our kids with this ideology. And so we, we need to understand the church's teaching. We need to understand the science. We need to know the dangers of um, you know, using preferred pronouns and encouraging kids to in embrace a gender identity that's different than their sex. But the short answer to your question, uh, go, go to the Sophia Institute Press website 
and, uh, and buy the book, read it and promote it to everyone that you know. This is something as a church that is desperately needed for us to be brave in this culture. Well, thank you, John Birch of the ADF of the Alliance Defending Freedom. And the book is Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology. Thank you. today sitting in the captain's chair because our friend and colleague Dr. Gracie Christie has lost her voice this week. She's got laryngitis so she will hopefully be back with us next week but for today I have my colleague Ashley McGuire uh, joining me and we're getting ready to delve into a really tragic story that many of us have read about. It's the short life of a little British girl, a baby named Indy Gregory. It's a very sad story. She was a darling baby who suffered from a critical illness, and she passed away this week after, sadly, the high court in the UK ordered that her life-sustaining treatments be stopped. And this was, unfortunately, despite her parents' wishes to continue caring for their little daughter, either at the hospital or at home. They also asked to take her home to care for her. But the court refused to bend. And uh, the hospital just uh, let the baby die. So that's what we're talking about today. And we're so grateful that Ashley is joining us today. So thanks for joining me, Ashley. Hey, Maureen, it's great to be with you. Um, so there's the rough outline of this tragic story. Um, do you mind filling in some of the blanks about this little baby, Indy Gregory, for our listeners? Sure. Well, you know, I think stepping back, this is the third of these such stories now that we've heard about. I mean, it could very well be that there's been more that we haven't reported on. I mean, you know, what I've heard from people in the UK is that you're not, they're not even really hearing about this story there, that it's its more our press that's covering it. Just sadly, a, a developing pattern that we're seeing where, um, you know, you have the UK has a nationalized healthcare system. And the result of that is that patients just uh, don't have the kind of say in their care that we do here in the United States. And that becomes really acute when it gets to the rights of parents over their children. And in this case, you know, the parents wanted to keep their baby alive. And what's doubly tragic is that Italy offered to take the baby and free of care, provide um, life support that the baby was receiving in the UK um, and make the family Italian citizens cover her care. And even then the, the, the UK court said, nope. And not only did they deny the parents the right to keep the baby on um, life support, but they said, you got to take her off right away as if it was this urgent matter that um, we, we can't spend a penny more keeping this precious baby alive and absolutely refused to cooperate with the Italian government's very magnanimous offer to take the baby to Italy to become a, an Italian citizen to stay on life support, you know, while they try to find other ways to extend the baby's life. I mean, how many times have we heard stories in fact, you know, I, I'm 
a member of Walking with Purpose in my church. And the woman who leads our group was telling us yesterday that the condition of this baby is very similar to one that her son was given at birth. And, you know, he's now in middle school. He's, his disabilities are, are very serious, but he's a member of their family, brings them a lot of joy. And, you know, with the way science and medicine continue to advance, we continue to be able to offer um, to people of all different kinds of disabilities, a quality of life that's, you know, worth fighting for, for these disabled babies. And some of these cases, you know, there's, there's frequently so much nuance. What is, we know our faith teaches, you know, makes the distinction between ordinary care, like uh, food and medicine, as opposed to extraordinary care. So we know there are a lot of nuances. And these are sometimes really tough calls. But I think what's so shocking here is the issue of who's making the decision. And when you have the parents very strong wishes to keep treating their baby, and you just have the government health system completely taking control, not even allowing the parents to take the baby home, that they not only didn't allow the the parents to take the baby to Italy, at no cost, they wouldn't even let the parents bring the baby home. And and one thing that I think was was super interesting was the father who said he wasn't even, I guess the father's name is Dean Gregory. He said that he wasn't even religious and that he was not baptized, but that he wanted the baby to be baptized. I thought that was fascinating. And he said something about he felt like he'd been dragged to hell. And if hell exists, then he thinks heaven must also exist. And therefore he wanted the baby baptized. Yes. In fact, the photo that I saw was the only photo that I saw of the baby was the baby in a christening gown. Oh, wow. So we we talked about this in Walking with Purpose too, um, because the the theme that we've been on right now is sort of death, which is an appropriate topic because we're in the month of November. This is uh-huh. <laughs> the month of all souls, and you know when we contemplate death, we pray for the souls in purgatory, and you know even seasonally we see this as you know the trees are changing and we're approaching winter. But yeah, that is what he said, and you know I think sadly that this is the experience of of many people who go through this kind of suffering is that it does bear spiritual fruits. So there's that is sort of a, a beautiful aspect to know that the baby was became a Christian before dying. And, you know, maybe this will bring the mother and the father uh, into conversion. He said, I'm not a religious person, but he said, as you said, that he felt like he had been dragged to hell, which I, I'm sure is has to be how parents who've lost a child would would describe it is is being dragged to hell. And, you know, I realized I didn't finish my point earlier, or my thought about how this is a pattern. This is the third time now, the previous two um, little babies that were uh, where the UK government absolutely refused to respect and honor the parents' wishes. Again, in those cases with the Italian government or the Vatican, offering to even send helicopters to evacuate these children to a hospital that was willing to provide and pay for life-giving care, Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans. And I think it should be a real, I mean, this should be a real wake-up call for Americans because we flirt with socialized medicine and, and it's portrayed as something that's sexy. But this is the reality of socialized medicine is you become a ward of the state and that includes your children and you basically give over any right over your any decision rights over your health care. I mean, Indy was basically made a ward of the national health system and the parents were completely 
cut out of the equation to the point that you, as you point out, they weren't even allowed to bring her home. I mean, even in this country, you know, if you, not only do you have, you know, the the right to um, decide if you want to, you know, go through extraordinary steps um, to, to stay alive or, or to keep a child alive, but you certainly have the right to bring a patient home. You have the right to die where you want to die and, and pay for parents to have the child die, die in the, I think as the way they put it, they took away her dignity, like her, her right to die in the care, in the loving and caring environment of her own home. I mean, nobody wants, you know, when you contemplate your own death to think about dying in a hospital bed with you know, machines beeping. And and that just sort of doubles the tragedy of it all. And, you know, there's an acronym that's used in hospitals, it's AMA, against medical advice. You're allowed to leave the hospital even against the medical advice of your doctors. We have that freedom here in this country. So how did they get to this point in the UK, do you think, Ashley, where where you have parents who are desperately trying to care for their baby, the government has taken total control of the child's life and decided upon death, but there it's an erosion of parental rights, it's an erosion of respect for life in general, erosion of respect for the lives of people with disabilities. How did we get here? <laughs> I don't know, but when you say it like that, I mean, we're on the path, you know, all of those things are sort of hallmarks, in my opinion, of our current culture, which is a lack of respect for for life itself, an eroding understanding of parental rights. I mean, we're seeing this much more play out in schools, but I have to say, you know, when you look at gender ideology and and you know the discussions about what rights do parents have to be informed and involved in those sorts of decisions, um, which are are medical, you know, involve serious medical aspects. You know, we're we're on that train, but unfortunately, I think that it, when you have a finite, you know, when you socialize medicine and there's finite resources, you know, it's inevitable that people are going to look at people with disabilities as a burden on the system because it costs a lot of money to take care of people who are disabled. We've already seen hints of this in our country and states that have legalized assisted suicide um, where the health insurance companies are like, okay, great. Like, you know, no, we're not going to pay what's going to amount to two, $3 million over the next 10 years to keep you alive. You know, if you've got some sort of a a chronic or terminal diagnosis, but here's some $10, you know, a $10 packet of pills that you can end your life with. We will pay for that. You know, it becomes a cost profit and loss situation. And I have to imagine that that is becomes the driving force in these decisions. And, you know, if you have finite resources, a, a baby that's already been given this diagnosis at birth, you know, they're looking at a lifetime of expense. And, you know, that's money that can be go to other medical expenses. And that's, you know, an inherent issue with social Socialized medicine is uh, not only do you create that scenario, but then you're turning over the decisions to bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. And, you know, do we want bureaucrats who've never even, you know, met or know this family or this child or this patient making these decisions for you and for your children? But that's the reality. And that's this story presents us, you know, in a clear and present way that this is where that road leads. Mm -hmm. And when you have cost driven healthcare, you're going to end up with rationing of healthcare and exactly. whose healthcare is going to be rationed, but it's it's going to be first the, the poor, the vulnerable, those with disabilities. Re- remember when we were debating in the US here, Obamacare, remember there was some provision that was, uh, you know, labeled death panels. Yeah. I, I believe they, they set that 
you know, somewhat aside, but anyway, we're very tricky ground. So a couple of minutes ago, you were referring to the issue of assisted suicide. I want to shift our discussion to some happier news here, actually, because the American Medical Association recently made a, a very positive decision on assisted suicide. They decided not to endorse because there was once again, a push to endorse. These professional associations generally have been taken over. They've been very politicized and taken taken over by very left-leaning forces. And it's not just the AMA, the American Medical Association, but the American Bar Association, it's similar. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists are in full support of abortion. So these professional associations have largely been captured by the very secular left. But on the issue of assisted suicide, thankfully, for the fourth time, there was a debate over whether the American Medical Association should uh, endorse that. And for the fourth time, they decided not to. So there's, there's some good news, Ashley. <laughs> but it, what are your thoughts on that? No, it, it is good news. I mean, it's, it's sort of a sad low bar that we have, like, you know, that we're celebrating the fact that, you know, the premier medical association has staved off one more time an attempt to get their stamp of approval on um, euthanasia. I mean, these are things that were unthinkable even 10, 15 years ago that we'd be here, but here we are. Um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> sadly, I think that they, the American Medical Association has just lost a lot of credibility because they've been, you know, allowed themselves to be caught up in so many, so much politics. But, but no, this is a huge, I think, important victory because there is a very concerted effort to legalize assisted suicide in every state, which, you know, <laughs> in tandem with rising suicide rates. I mean, we're simultaneously and rightfully so wringing our hands about the fact that we have like a runaway suicide problem in this country. And it's especially acute among young people. I want to say it's the leading or the second leading cause of death for basically older children and young adults. Um, you know, it's kind of feels like it's neck and neck with substance abuse, like drug overdoses. So, you know, these are very much red alert signs of despair. But, <clears throat> you know, they uh, people on the other side would argue that that's, you know, that has nothing to do with assisted suicide, but it absolutely does. If you destigmatize suicide of any kind, you should absolutely expect to see a rise in suicide more broadly. And I think that's already happening because of that attempt, you know, even though the laws may not necessarily reflect that yet, I, I think it has had that effect of destigmatizing or taking away the, the horror factor of, of suicide. And, you know, to the point that my sister who lives in Colorado recently sent me a picture of a flyer that was just tacked onto the tack board of her local library right there with, you know, know, English lessons for people, you know, immigrants and children's reading story hours is a four-part discussion series on assisted suicide. And the the goal, I think it, the flyer said, was to reduce the stress and anxiety surrounding what they call death with dignity, which is, you know, their way of putting a, a rhetorical spin on, on assisted suicide. So we're normalizing death and suicide in this country, and we're seeing the effects of that already. And so it's it's all the more important that doctors who's, you know, take a Hippocratic oath 
to do no harm and to, you know, that to act as professional healers do not get swept up in normalizing and legalizing suicide. Mm -hmm. Sense of worst message to our teenagers who really are suffering from so much loneliness and the effects of social media. And we need to be offering our teenagers hope and not despair. <laughs> We're literally teaching them that when, when life gets tough, this is a good way to check out. And, you know, we, we, uh, we get painted as scolds when we talk about slippery slopes. But, you know, the story that we were just discussing about the baby in the UK, that is where you go with the slippery slope when it comes to socialized medicine. And when it comes to assisted suicide, again, Europe, you know, I think we have to always be looking at Europe because they're just, they're maybe 10 to 15 years ahead of us on these issues because they've made things legal that we haven't. Um, but you know, there are countries in Europe that allow people to use assisted suicide on children and teenagers and allow people to avail themselves of assisted suicide because they're depressed, because they have mental disorders or because they have physical disabilities. And so again, if you want to see slippery slopes when it comes to assisted suicide, look at Europe. I think people can't, they they probably don't even believe the stories because they seem so horrifying when you, you know, hear about assisted suicide being used on children and people who are disabled or mentally ill, but that's where it ends up. Well, at least this news out of the AMA was a bit of a silver lining in this week of otherwise very harsh news. So glad we could flesh some of this out, Ashley. Um, make sure to check out the CatholicAssociation.org for all the latest news and the latest shows. We'd love to hear from you if you have any comments about the show or would like us to discuss anything in particular. Feel free to find us on Facebook or Twitter or write us directly. Send an email to info at the CatholicAssociation.org. We hope you enjoyed the show and we're looking forward to catching you next week. Hopefully Gracie will be back in the saddle uh, as we look ahead to Thanksgiving and Advent just around the corner. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as he teaches us about human life and death, about the gifts he's given us and how he wants us to use them, about how we are to be judged at the end of our life, how, to, how we are to prepare for the final exam, and what reward will be for our acing it. In some ways, the history of the world, the whole arc of our life, and the vocation God has given us are all found in this Sunday short story. It's called the Parable of the Talents. Many of us know it well. Jesus says, a rich man going on a journey called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. Twenty gave five talents, another two, and a third one. On the man's return, the servant who had received five gave him back ten. The servant who had received two likewise doubled and gave him back four. But the one who had received one talent buried it and just gave him back the one at the end. The first two received the same reward. The master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I'll give you great responsibility. Come, share your master's joy. The one who returned the buried talent, however, received a totally different response. The master called him wicked and lazy, asked why he didn't at least put it in the bank to gain interest, had the talent taken away from him and given to the one with ten, and then had him thrown into the outer darkness, which was an image of the lightless self-alienation we call hell. Whole retreats can be preached in the elements of this parable. But let's highlight the biggest point. Sometimes in our egalitarian culture, we can object to the fact that the master entrusted his possessions disparately, each according to a servant's ability. 
Some can wonder whether there was far greater risk to the servant who had received just one talent, losing the little he had, rather than those who had received five and two, who seemed to have margin for error. We have to remember, however, that the word talent Jesus uses referred to a measurement of weight. One talent of silver was equal to 6,000 days wages, or 16 and two-thirds years worth of work. Today's money, if someone made $100 a day, $12.50 an hour for an eight-hour job, he would have received $600,000 to invest. We see the difference in how the first two servants and the third servant responded to the master's trust. Jesus says that those who would receive the five and two talents, three million and 1.2 million respectively, immediately went out and started to make it grow. They both received 100% return from their 100% effort and investment. It almost implies that all one had to do was try because the conditions for investment were so favorable. The servant who had received the one talent, however, buried that huge weight of silver out of fear. Fear to take a risk. Fear that the master reaped where he didn't sow and gathered where he didn't scatter. Rather than sensing the confidence given to him by the master, he was afraid of him, deeming him demanding, cruel, tyrannical, and as a result, buried himself with his potential along with the talent. God gives to each of us according to our ability, but no matter what, each of us has been invested with much. God trusts us, and he wants us to develop his gifts. We might not be as smart as Thomas Aquinas, as brave as many of our martyrs, or as holy as St. Teresa of Calcutta, but God has given us all enormous gifts. None of us is a pauper in the endowment category. And the greatest talents God has given us are spiritual. The gift of baptism, the Holy Eucharist, or confirmation, the ability to start anew each confession, the gifts of marriage or holy orders, the word of God, so many opportunities for charity, the crosses with which he caresses us and conforms us to himself, the intercession of the saints, our friendship with God and our ability to turn to him in prayer, and so much more. We're called not to waste or bury these treasures, but to invest them. Because each of them contains a potential that even if we try, the parable implies, we can't lose. The crucial application that the Lord wants us to make in this month of November, as we ponder the four last things, is to determine whether we've been like the first two servants or like the third. If Jesus were to come right now, like a thief in the night, and call us to an account, would he praise us for having used the gifts he has given us to build up his kingdom? to make his world a much better and more sacred place, to spread his salvific joy to others? Or would, he recognize, or would we recognize in his presence that we've buried most of his gifts, especially the greatest spiritual ones? Have we responded to the unbelievable trust that the Lord has shown us in his lavish, lavish blessing as a motivation to do good works to the glory of our Heavenly Father? Or have we feared his judgment and done little or nothing? There are many Christians who out of fear or a false sense of humility bury their gifts under a bushel basket. They never take the risk of sharing the faith or living the faith overflowing. They strive not to lose the state of grace, not to commit any mortal sin, not to set bad example, not to make any mistakes. But they don't realize that they may be failing to do so much good that the Lord wants. They never grow because the only way one grows in faith, hope, and love is through acts of faith, hope, and love with the help of God's grace. Rather than make the world a better and holier place, they succumb to the devil's temptation and make their goal simply not to harm the world or to leave it as they found it. If that's been our attitude until now, Jesus gives us this parable in order to provoke in us what he was trying to do with his first hearers, to have us unbury the gifts and start to use them for the purpose with which God entrusted us with them. I want to apply these lessons to two contexts. 
The first is to the World Day of the Poor, which is taking place this Sunday. Pope Francis made a powerful connection between Jesus' parable and the poor three years ago when he said in a homily at St. Peter's, The master tells the faithless servant, You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Pope Francis asks, Who are the bankers who can provide us with long-term interest? And he replies, They're the poor. The poor are like Jesus himself, who though rich, emptied himself, made himself poor, even taking sin upon himself, sin the worst kind of poverty. The poor guarantee us an eternal income. Even now, Pope Francis concludes, they help us become rich in love. We can paraphrase by saying the poor are our eternal investors. They help us become rich when we empty ourselves to care for them. Only what is given away in love can fit through the eye of the needle after all. Pope says that we see at the end of the parable a glimpse of the end of life. He says some will be wealthy while others who had plenty and wasted their lives will be poor. At the end of our life then the truth will be revealed. The pretenses of the world will fade with its notion that success, power, and money give life meaning. Whereas love, the love we've given and shared, will be revealed as true riches. That's the first context. The second is to the celebration of Thanksgiving we'll mark on Thursday. Thanksgiving is an annual opportunity for us to reflect on all of the talents, riches, and blessings that God and others have entrusted to us and to turn to Him and them and say thank you. The greatest way we say thanks is to invest the gifts of love that have been given to us, to be transformed by them, and to share them lavishly with others. Thanksgiving is a day on which we think not about what we don't have, but about what we do. And we celebrate those gifts at the altar with God and at the dinner table with family, friends, and if we're generous and wise, with the poor and those who have nowhere else to go. When it comes to our investment portfolio, Thanksgiving, not just the fourth Thursday of November, but regularly, has to be our most important mutual fund because it helps us to remember our gifts and inspires us to share them. The Lord has given us individually so much and he has given us collectively so much more to build up his kingdom. He's done it because he has trust in us, having confidence with our carrying out his saving work in our part of his worldwide vineyard and beyond. Whether up until now we've been faithful in these small matters or timidly buried his gifts, now is the time to respond to God's grace, to begin to invest the treasures he's given to us so as to help him save the world and redeem our brothers and sisters one by one. If we do so, if we inspire each other in this way, then there's no reason for us ever to fear death or be terrified of judgment. For when the Lord returns, we will be able to present to him the ways that the gifts he's given us have grown in us and through us in the lives of others. And he will be able to say to each of us the words he created our ears to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been trustworthy in small matters. I will give you great responsibility. Come share your master's joy. Our reward will be to share even more in God's gifts as stewards of his saving plan. This Sunday, he will bless us with the treasure of his word and the even greater gift of his body and blood. Let us prepare to go out immediately after Mass like the one who received five talents to invest these gifts by truly loving and serving others, especially those in greatest need, who will help us to become rich in what alone matters as we seek to enrich them with the enormous wealth of God's holy love. God bless you all, and happy Thanksgiving. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 